Are you looking for intellectual and personal enrichment, vocational development, or spiritual growth? Atlantic School of Theology offers a range of graduate and diploma programs as well as continuing education events. Learning opportunities via online, hybrid, and on-campus formats are all available, so you can study on campus in Halifax, Nova Scotia, or from anywhere in the world. For more information, visit astheology.ns.ca. Welcome to the Faith Forward podcast series. Faith Forward is a grassroots network dedicated to bringing together leaders of ministry with children, youth, and families for collaboration, resourcing, and inspiration toward innovative theology and practice. Through this series, we'll learn from creative, forward-thinking leaders who are pushing the boundaries and reimagining what it means to follow Jesus' way of love and justice today. Join us as we instigate a revolution of hope in our world. Hello and welcome to the Faith Forward podcast. My name is Dave Sinis. And before we get into our conversation today, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this episode, Atlantic School of Theology. AST is an ecumenical theological school that shapes faithful and effective ordained and lay leaders and understanding in communities of faith. And it offers degree and diploma programs and all kinds of continuing ed uh, opportunities on campus and online, and uh, you can learn more at astheology.ns.ca. But now on to the show. Uh, it's a great privilege to be joined today by one of the most prophetic and pastoral leaders alive today, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. Dr. Moss is no stranger to Faith Forward, having offered the closing message at our 2016 gathering, and he needs no introduction. But still, I should say that he's uh, the pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, an NAACP Image Award recipient, and professor of homiletics at McAfee School of Theology. Uh, he was named one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English-speaking world, and he's the author of a brand new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Dr. Moss, I am so glad to be able to speak with you today. It's a delight to be back, Dave. I hope you are well and staying warm. Yeah, absolutely. A little too warm some days this uh, this February. Um, I I want I I love the book. Uh, it's accessible and profound. And I, you know, you open it at the beginning by talking about the importance of stories, and that is what it is. These these lessons and these thoughts that you have about how to persevere and do more than persevere, but actually make a difference in um, our world today. Um, and you do so by telling fantastic stories. Um, but you start the book by saying that we're living in a time of spiritual crisis. And I'm really struck by the way you name it as, you know, all sorts of crises that we're facing, but at its heart, you say this is a spiritual crisis. So I wonder if we could start by just opening that up and, and hearing what you mean by that. Certainly. Um... I've noticed over several years, really it seems several decades, people have been trying to scratch a spiritual itch mm -hmm. with material things, 
whether it's clout chasing, scrolling, social media, some type of materialism, and we end up empty in the process. When in actuality, it is a spiritual issue. It's a values issue. It's an issue around understanding our connectedness to each other and to creation, but we're always trying to fill it with something that is material, immediate, and not lasting. This does not last. And it, it became so very clear to me that we need to return, or I should say reinvigorate the values we know uh, that our heart desires and stand on the virtues uh, that we know that our soul deeply needs. In my mind, I mean, I often think and talk about spirituality as um, something inherent that we're, we're built, we're created as spiritual people. It's, it's, it's built into our human condition. Um, and so really the spiritual crisis is a crisis involving everyone. It doesn't matter what side of the political aisle one might be on or what one's faith tradition uh, might be or or whatever age someone is. Um, and in that sense, then, this spiritual crisis and, and, and the way you uh, talk about how to um, more than resist it, how to combat it through love and justice um, is really for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, why is that kind of unifying nature of of this so uh, important? I mean, there's so much discussion today, whatever terms we use, right? Liberal, conservative, progressive, tradition, traditional, like what, whatever. All these terms are uh, imprecise and and some often unhelpful. Um, so you do quite a remarkable thing by almost pushing that all aside and saying, no, we're in, we're in this spiritual crisis together. Um, yep. so, so why is that so central to you and, and how can others of us, uh, kind of do that unifying work as well? Cause it's so incredibly difficult. It is, it is. And I, and I think that, um, th this idea of the spiritual crisis for, for me, the idea of spirituality is recognizing the interconnectedness, uh, of right. all human beings and, and, and our connection with, with, with creation. And we, the language we use is, is really clothing that we wear that doesn't get to the heart of what we are attempting to cover up. Right. Whether you are on the left or whether you're on the right, there is a, a central feeling. Uh, you know, folks on the right feel that they're losing something. Uh, those mm -hmm. on the left uh, feel that we are yet to build something. And but but both are, are going through a particular crisis and it's a human crisis and it's a spiritual crisis. And if we are to build the kind of democracy that, that we desire, if we are to create the beloved community uh, that that our spirits yearn for, we've got to be very honest and, and open and vulnerable and authentic mm. that a political label does not lead to transformation. Right. And in the religious community, um, the labels that we use are so deeply inadequate. The doctrines mm -hmm. that we have, inadequate. The language that we use, inadequate. So we have to be honest about that there's something that we deeply yearn for, 
And, and that's what spirituality is about, that, that mm -hmm. we're spiritual beings having a physical experience, not physical beings that just happen to have a physical, uh, spiritual experience. Uh, and, and when we get back to that source, we are able to deal with the true crisis at hand, that we are interconnected, but everything that we create as human beings disrupts the interconnection that we want to live in a world rooted in the idea of love, rooted in the idea of justice, but we no longer teach nor walk a path that leads us in that direction. Mm -hmm. we, 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 we operate like football players or basketball players or sports players. We just want to win. And then we find out that after we win, we're still empty. Right. You know, after the feeling gone is gone. It's like we got another season of this. We got to do this again. Um, and, and we realize that we're not winning. Well, what is it? It's a deepening spiritual crisis. And we've got to get back to these uh, foundational virtues that allow human beings to flourish. That kind of football analogy reminds me of the just this kind of the inbred competitiveness sometimes of our political and theological um doctrines as well and it's often you know we we can sometimes define ourselves not based on who we think we are but who we're against because that's easier to, <laughs> right. to look at them and say we're not them i don't quite know who i am but i'm not that so i'll use this other label um until those moments that those labels maybe don't work anymore um i mean i mean faith forward uh has always looked bigger than just children youth and families but that's always been our focus as parents and caregivers and practitioners of of ministry uh with young people and families and of course you know that and and have contributed to that um and and i think that that's what struck me most right i mean page two you had me at page two when you said really this this book um had its beginning as this it really is an act of parenting with this letter that you wrote to your teenage son, uh, Elijah, back in 2016. Um, and uh, so, so I wonder if you if we could uh, talk a little bit about that and and what um, kind of what what you noticed back in 2016, what was that message? And and how is has that shifted and grown uh, in, in the past number of years? Mm. Um, I appreciate that question. One is because uh, I, I think you caught the idea that 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 part of this is is kind of a love letter and um, gift that I want to give to my children and grandchildren in terms of, yeah. of writing. Um, and the, the part of the impetus for the book comes about as my son witnessed the recorded death of Philando Castile mm -hmm. on the internet and raised the question, am I next? Mm -hmm. And that was the, the catalyst for the personal letter, which became a public letter uh, that mm -hmm. was published uh, to, to, to my son to raise some important questions uh and to share with him even though he may probably get it at the time but i think now he's about to graduate from college now right um he really appreciated 
uh, and was very grateful that that we were able to have this very honest uh, conversation and delve into the issues that most people don't want to talk about. Mm. Parenting is a part, a part of parenting is raising difficult questions, talking about vulnerabilities, dealing with one's authenticity, passing on your spiritual uh, values to, to your children and letting them know that though they may have questions and, and critiques that they're, this is a thousand upon thousands of years old tradition mm -hmm. that, that people have held on to, uh, that allow us to, to flourish and resist and renew in the most difficult moments in our, in our lives. And, and that's what I was hoping to be able to share. And maybe a few parents will recognize that, that there's no, there is no better antidote to pain than walking through the garden of truth. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that is what, what every parent has to embrace. But it's a challenging message also for parents because it gets to the heart of that vulnerability and authenticity. And I wonder if that's part of the reason is because of the tremendous pain that we that, that we can feel if we invite and and encourage our children to be part of this tradition that we're part of. Hmm. And then perhaps they don't want to be part of it um, down the road. Perhaps they they say, no, that's that's not for me. I mean, I imagine that that might be part of the challenge of why um a lot of parents over the past couple of years you know since the beginning of the pandemic have been struggling with you know what what do i do to to spiritually nurture and to to share my own spirituality with with children and with the children and youth in my lives instead of you know the, the uh, allowing our churches and our faith communities to take the primary role i mean you as as a pastor you know the tremendous uh power of a faith community to shape people but really um it is it is as a as a parent so what what would you say to other parents and those who work with parents who want to uh do this kind of love and justice work with the young people in their lives because at the end of the day this isn't a book about ideas and philosophy it's a, it's a book of action of stories um of people who have done things that are meant to encourage readers to to not just think about love and justice but to actually enact it in mm. their worlds you know i appreciate that thought so very much mm. For, for, for several reasons. There's a term that I, I like and I also dislike at the same time for the way that it's employed when people say, oh, yeah, you need to create community. And, and it's always <laughs> right. from, you know, some ivory tower, somebody. Um, and the idea of community is like a play date. Uh, <laughs> for kids, you know, let's have some wine and cheese or something or go to a football game. I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, creating being in spaces 
where you are forced to reconcile with other people. That, that's one of the beauties of the faith community. And I'll speak from the African-American perspective when all these, these, these peculiar critiques that are, that are on the internet and whatnot about churches and da, 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 and everybody wants to talk about, and, and, I, and I, I'm not dismissing this, but people want to talk about some of the church hurt and trauma and things of that nature. Yeah. And I understand that. But what has been completely, utterly lost is that there is no other community that creates this unique village network like uh, the church and the, the African-American church. And I can speak as one who grew up in it, where there were people who became my aunts and uncles mm -hmm. and wrapped their arms around me. And I heard the stories of what it was like to migrate from Mississippi, but you were forced to migrate because someone was coming to kill your family. Mm -hmm. And they would tell the stories about, I came to Cleveland, Ohio with nothing in my pocket. Um, but, you know, God made a way. And now I'm, I'm working with this union. Uh, I'm a, I was a steel worker for so many years. I mean, these were normative stories. Mm -hmm. That was the same person who was also the official at my track and field events. Mm -hmm. So the same person who's telling me the Mississippi story is also the person who is uh, adjudicating <laughs> the track and field events in high school. Uh, and then the other person is, is who's do, who is the, teaching the junior deacons is also, was also a police officer, but is the one who's giving us the advice about how you got to engage the police as a young African-American man. I don't know of any other institution mm -hmm. that could be in the, all those spaces and fill all those gaps. I had wonderful parents, but parents can only fill so much. You, as a child and as, an, as a teenager, you hear words from someone else at a higher level than you do your parents. They can say the exact same thing, use the yeah. exact same inflection as your parents. And you're like, oh, that's wisdom. That's awesome. You know what I heard today? <laughs> like I've been saying this for like eight years, but it has to come from someone else. There's no other institution. The school system doesn't do it. Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, they don't do it. They, they give pieces of it. But when you have a healthy faith community, mm -hmm. And when I say healthy, that means authentic, where you are forced to reconcile, meaning mm -hmm. reconcile, meaning you don't get along with everybody. You don't yeah. even believe the same things as everybody. You have disagreements, but you're forced to reconcile. And I, and I came to understand that, you know, in the South, when we were at Tabernacle Baptist Church, the first church that I had the privilege of, of serving, and, and there were all these people who were in deep disagreement with each other. But at the same time, if someone was ill, that same person they had a deep disagreement with, they showed up at that hospital. They showed up at someone's house if someone died. And it, they were always in reconciliation with each other. Mm -hmm. Today, we don't believe in reconciliation. We believe in winning. Mm -hmm. Winning doesn't, you don't reconcile in winning. It's like, I won, you lose. Yeah. Whereas in this community, when you teach that idea of reconciling 
with someone who is also made in the image of God, it creates a completely different trajectory of how you develop and view yourself and how you what you believe success is. The problem today, and I, and I said this, um, saying it to my son actually, and I was saying it to a, to a group at, at church, that we've never been called to success, we've been called to faithfulness. Mm -hmm. And success is always defined by numbers, material, um, and really a very male-centric, look at all the stuff I got. Yeah. Where faithfulness is a deep commitment to this moment, mm -hmm. to the people around you, and to the values that you live. And you do it the best you can for the time period you have on earth. And then you pass it on to the next person. And that's what a parent does. We need parents, not successful parents, faithful parents who are willing to risk and commit themselves to their families and to their communities. I, as you're saying that, I'm struck by this, uh, this image that in one of the stories that you talk about in, in the book where you, you it's that, that, um, kind of how you were not converted, but how you were became more convinced of the power of that kind of nonviolent love and justice work of Dr. King mm -hmm. and this picture of a march and the elders and the children. That, I mean, we could just say the families, right? Those who, who were there as part of it. I mean, that's, that's parents being faithful. Mm -hmm. That's grandparents and aunts and uncles being faithful, not being successful, but being, being faithful. faithful. Yeah. And that's where I think the, that's what overcomes these kind of doctrines that you say are inadequate that we often, I mean, that's the biggest thing I hear as someone who works with youth and children is I don't, as parents saying, I don't know enough theology or I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm like, well, that's, that's fine. None of us do. No, nobody yeah. does. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And all that theological stuff. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but if you have questions and stories and an imagination, yes, that's faithful to mm -hmm. to God, and that's faithful to our uh, call to love each other. That's all you need, and maybe you're in a better position because you're unfettered by all that, <laughs> all that doctrine that you say you don't know. Right. Um, and you get to be the primary yeah. storyteller for, yeah. your, for your family. I really think that that's one of the primary roles of a parent. You, you should be the primary storyteller so your children can pick up a particular story. I mean, in my family, the story of my grandfather is, you know, it's like the sacred text. <laughs> it's the story of my <laughs> grandfather attempting to vote, but he was not able to vote in 1946. And uh, we, were, we we created a movie around it, a little short film and all of yeah. that. But it was the storytelling of my father. Mm -hmm. And then that story, he shared that story with my son and with my daughter. That's a sacred text for us that talks about faithfulness. It talks mm -hmm. about resistance. It talks about fighting forces that seem bigger than you, but you're connected to something deeper he's sharing a story. He's a storyteller. We're supposed to all be griots for our children so that they have a story to be able to share. 
and you can connect love and justice, compassion and yeah. and self-discipline and restoration and renewal and grace and mercy. Th those are the central elements that matter of fact, any good writer utilizes, they always have those elements in a, in a good story uh, connected with some degree of conflict. And, mm. and I think that's just really what parents are called to do. You, you should be the primary storyteller for your children. Mm -hmm. And these stories don't have to be the, the great, you know, um, things that rival the stories of Moses or the stories of, of Dr. King. <laughs> it's just everyday stories of everyday, everyday common story. faithfulness. Nana yeah. was a gardener and she loved her garden. That, that's, that, that's, that's, yeah. that's it. That's all you got to share, you know, and Jane was the coach in the community. That's all you've got to share. And she loved coaching yeah. basketball or volleyball. Those, those are the stories. And let me tell you where this apple pie came from. Yeah. It, it came from your great grandmother. She learned how to make this apple pie and tell the stories about yeah. the apples and the sauce and what, why that she puts extra cinnamon in it. You know, I mean, it's, it's just yeah, real, right. <laughs> great yeah. stories. And, and they, they, those are the things that intrigue us more than some of these other pieces. We remember stories and yeah. as human beings, that's how we learn. We learn through stories. And right now we're telling some pretty terrible stories because we're allowing other people to be the storyteller. Uh, I mean, you're a pastor and a, and a professor and a parent. A lot of people who are involved in Faith Forward are practitioners, they're volunteer or, uh, or, or employed leaders or lay or, you know, clergy um, leaders in churches and, and other organizations. So what do pastoral leaders do? Like what, what advice would you have to those who say, I want to help my parents do this? Um, how do I, how do I start? I want to tell these kind of stories. I want to encourage them to tell their stories. First talk with them <laughs> it will be mm -hmm. the first one is to, to have conversation with what, with what they need and what they desire. And I believe that pastors are to be primary traffickers in story, not just biblical story, but in the stories of the congregation that you're a part of. And that's what I was sharing in the book. I was sharing because people gave me permission to tell their stories. So I tell the story of this incredibly brave, wonderful woman by the name of Latonda Graves, whose son was. Yeah. I tell the story of Donna Hammond, uh, who was abused as a child, but then comes to this knowledge that she's, a, you know, a child of God. I tell the story of Deacon Lawrence Miles. We call him West Side. He's from the West Side of Chicago. So we call him West Side Deacon. Um, and Lawrence was was a was an alcoholic. Uh, I mean, deep into alcoholism, and was probably an urban pharmaceutical salesperson or rep at one point. Uh, those who get the joke I'm making, yeah. um, but he's a deacon. He's an amazing deacon, and he gave me permission to tell his incredible story. Um, asking people and listening to their stories becomes important for pastors to. Uh, to share and sharing the stories that they, their superpowers, mm. they don't have to look like Thor along with Black Panther 
and Tony Stark. You don't have to be the Avengers. Right. All you have to do is the superpower that we're given is the authenticity of our testimony and the risk that we take in faith because faith and risk are the same things. Mm -hmm. So making that risk in terms of being vulnerable to share your story. I mean, I, I share my story to the congregation uh, often uh, about my sister who was a paranoid schizophrenic mm -hmm. and, you know, she eventually was the most brilliant person I knew, but uh, she committed uh, suicide at a very young age. Uh, but she's the one that, that taught me my love of literature. Mm -hmm. That simple story of being vulnerable opened the door for parents and for children of parents who, who have mental health issues to say, it's okay to share my story. And I'm so glad that yeah. you did that, um, that it's not a story of, you know, just of deep, you know, sorrow and pain. There's some great triumph in that too. So we, we have to dig into those areas. And there are certain traditions that just don't like authenticity and vulnerability. There just really are. And some pastors have developed in those traditions where you don't share anything about yourself. You know, we keep, you know, it's, you keep it on the gospel. You, we, of course. Yeah. I, I, I understand that. Uh, but your story is wrapped into the story. It's not an either or sharing your story right. doesn't mean you're not sharing the gospel, right? Sharing your faithful story being, you know, living into your God giving superpowers, whether you're a pastor or a parent, um, is really an embodiment of the gospel. That's right. In a lot of ways. So the gospel is nothing but a, I mean, I, I'm, I love the gospels and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's beautifully written and they're to be told orally. And the other thing is it's, it's a collection of stories, but it's a collection of people who are eyewitnesses that are just telling you, this is what I saw or a person, you know, I love the way that Jesus talks about, you know, the 10 lepers. And then one comes back to say, thank you, or the story of the prodigal son. But usually the healing stories, there's always somebody making in the African-American tradition, we do what you call the sanctified imagination. You know, the yeah. person uh, communicates the fact that, yeah, I met this man by the name of Jesus. Let me tell you what he did. He hooked me up in ways that <laughs> no one else could. And, and it, it is a part of that, that larger narrative. You know, the, the, the beauty of telling these stories, stories, if you, let me put it this way, the right story can either liberate you, uh, the wrong story can uh, oppress you, but a new story in your life will always change you, no matter what. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's really where we are right now, is that in, across the globe, people are trying to, those in power are trying to get people to function under a story that doesn't allow us to flourish. But there's always a new story. There's always the a new story. of a new story. Yeah. It's, and that's why during, in wartime, you know, propaganda is so incredibly uh, popular because they mm -hmm. don't want people sell, telling certain stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you don't want people telling stories that the allies got together and that guess what? The Nazis are losing. They, they don't want that because that story is mm -hmm. dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's more dangerous than bullets mm -hmm. because if that story gets in the minds of people, you've lost the war. Yeah. 
and and we are in a war right now where of of storytelling telling powerful loving redeeming restoring story and it and and what's fascinating about it is whether you are a person of faith an agnostic an atheist you're non-theistic whatever it is everybody is yearning for this story mm -hmm. they may name it differently but mm -hmm. they, they they want everybody wants the story is it possible to be redeemed and restored mm -hmm. and will grace operate in this moment is hope available uh, can people be reconciled? They want that story desperately. And when you have that in the back of your mind, it changes the way that you interact with people and it changes the way you do your work, it changes the way you parent, it changes the way your household functions. When those stories become preeminent or if the seed of those stories are just in the hearts of a family, it changes a family forever. I'm really grateful for your uh, sitting for for sitting down with me today and sharing um, your wisdom. Um, it, it, you know, I've I've read the book and I feel like I've gotten to read between the lines and take a a little bit of a tour backstage um, afterwards. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, for invoking hope and for telling new stories of faithfulness. Um, if you want to hear more stories and you're listening and, and you, this is just uh, making you want to hear more, um, definitely pick up a copy of Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Dr. Moss, thank you again. Dave, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Faith Forward podcast series. If you want to learn more from creative thinkers and innovative leaders, be sure to subscribe or visit faith-forward.net.